We are uh, now just into the second part of a, I think, a 10-part series. I hope it doesn't turn into a 15, 20, 25-part series, uh, looking at Genesis 1 through 3. And we're doing so with a, a particular slant, uh, a particular purpose, which is to look at the, the, this introduction to the scriptures, really the introduction of the world, to help us discern what's going on with the world around us right now. Um, it, it's a return to biblical foundations for a crumbling culture. And so I do imagine that um, if you were here last week uh, and you, you heard our first message, um, there's not necessarily a lot of things that... I think for most of us in the room that are new, we probably assume or believe many of the things we're going to hear, but it's helpful for us to think, why do we believe these things to be true, and and how can we share that with those around us in these days? And so that's what we're after. Last week, we just looked at four words, in the beginning, God. Um, I'm just going to ease us in a little bit further, and now we'll look at six words tonight, seven words tonight. God created the heavens and the earth. So we're in Genesis 1 and verse 1. That will be our starting point. We'll also take um, a time to look at a variety of passages, but again, especially Romans 1. So let's quiet our hearts as we hear God speak to us from the very opening of his holy word. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. This is the infallible, inerrant, unfailing, and life-giving word from God to you this evening. Um, Earlier this morning, uh, we uh, sang a a hymn that I had written uh, the words for, and uh, it was published in New Horizons to kind of be our denomination's theme during the thank offering, Taste and See. The composer of that, a colleague of mine, a good friend of mine, lives in the Bahamas. It's always good to have friends who live in warm places. And so one time, uh, Carrie Ann and I were visiting him uh, back when we were still in seminary, and it was actually over Easter Sunday, and we went with him to his church there. He's the the church musician. Um, And after church, we got to meet Philip Davis. No reaction? (laughs) Philip Davis is the prime minister of the Bahamas. Um, We didn't know that either because we don't keep up on our Caribbean news outlets. Uh, But our friend, upon introducing us, immediately said, uh, this is Philip Davis, the prime minister of the Bahamas. Now, he did not need to do that, right? He could have said, this is my friend, Philip Davis, which would have been true. He could have said, this is a member of our church, Philip Davis, which would have been true. Uh, But it would have been almost deceptive to not share the information that this man was the prime minister with us. Uh, There was no other way we could have known that uh, apart from this introduction. Uh, Davis was not dressed any differently than the other worshipers on that Easter Sunday. He didn't have a security detail following him. But since he was introduced to us promptly as the prime minister, it, it helped us to know how to engage with him, how to approach him with the respect and the dignity uh, of someone in such an office. Uh, It was the very first thing that our friend said about Philip Davis. This is the prime minister. The very first thing that the Bible says about God is that he is the creator. There's significance to that, isn't there? The Bible doesn't need to begin there, seemingly. The Bible could have said any number of other very true things about God. In the beginning, God was holy. In the beginning, God was powerful. In the beginning, God was perfect. These things would all be true. But right out the gate, 
it lets us know how we should approach him, how we should engage with him by telling us that he's the creator of all. It's not just the first thing that the Bible says about God. It's something that the Bible returns to over and over again. It's as though there's no bigger statement the Bible could make about God than that he is the creator of all. And indeed, the Hebrew word for create, which is uh, used in Genesis 1-1, bara, that word is only used of God's work in the entire Old Testament. Every time you find that verb... It's referring to what God has done, not something that man would create, not anything that man makes up. That word is reserved for God alone. Well, there's nothing more foundational to your knowledge of God than recognizing him to be what the Bible declares him to be, the creator of all things in heaven and on earth, things seen and things unseen. Let's consider firstly this evening how the Bible declares this truth. Something we find often in the Bible is that when a believer wants to attribute what we could call godness to God, they appeal to the fact that he's the maker. Let me list for you some passages. You can write these down. I don't expect you to turn to all of them. I don't think um, even our best uh, sword drillers would be able to get to all these as fast as we're going to go through them. Nehemiah 9.6, you are the Lord, you alone You have made heaven, the heaven of heavens, with all their hosts, the earth and all that is on it, the seas and all that is in them, and you preserve all of them, and the host of heaven worships you. How does Nehemiah begin? You are the Lord, you alone. How do we know it? Because you've made everything. Psalm 74, yet God, my king, is from of old. Yours is the day, yours also the night. You've established the heavenly lights and the sun. You have fixed all the boundaries of the earth. You have made summer and winter. Moses writes in Psalm 90, Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. From all time you are God, but how do we, time-bound creatures, know that you're God? Because you made time. You made the world. The prophet Isaiah, chapter 45, beginning in verse 18, inserts these parenthetical interjections into the message that he's delivering from God. It's, it's very interesting. For thus says the Lord who created the heavens, parentheses, he is God, who formed the earth and made it, parentheses, he established it, he did not create it empty, he formed it to be inhabited. Thus says the Lord, I am the Lord and there is no other. Romans 11, for from him and through him and to him are all things, to him be glory forever. And even in Revelation 4, this is what the worshipers will be singing in the new heavens and new earth. Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. According to the biblical data, the creation of the universe displays the perfections of God, the attributes of God. Creation is Proof, for example, of God's glory. Psalm 19, verse 1. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Creation is proof of God's glory. It's also proof of God's power. Jeremiah 32, 17. Lord God, it is you who have made the heavens and the earth by your great power and by your outstretched arm. Nothing is too hard for you. His glory and his power displayed in creation 
Creation is also proof of God's wisdom. Psalm 136, verse 1, give thanks to the Lord. And then verse 4, who by understanding made the heavens, by understanding. Or Psalm 104, O Lord, how manifold are your works in wisdom. You have made them all. Creation also serves as a witness to God's faithfulness, not just his glory, his power, his wisdom, his faithfulness. In Jeremiah 33, thus says the Lord, if you could break my covenant with the day and my covenant with the night so that day and night would not come at their appointed time, then also my covenant with David might be broken so that he would not have a son to reign on his throne. God says, look to nature, see the sun rise, see the sun set, see how the planets are, are in orbit and how these things cannot be changed. That's how faithful I am. Creation is proof of my faithfulness. Creation is also proof of God's goodness. The Lord is good to all, Psalm 145 says, and his mercy is over all that he has made. Old Testament scholar Bruce Waltke summarizes it well. Quote, his creation reveal reveals his immeasurable power and might, his bewildering imagination and wisdom, his immortality and his transcendence, which ultimately leaves the finite mortal in mystery. And Meredith Klein is certainly right when he claims that this truth of God as creator is the foundation of all knowledge. This is what the Bible declares about God as creator. And while this truth is foundation for all knowledge and the rejection of it is the height of all folly, what we see in the world around us is a sort of um, ins insatiable, uh, almost fanatic denial of this truth. So we've seen first how the Bible declares the truth of God as creator. Secondly, let's consider how the unbeliever denies the truth of God as creator. And here's where I want us to turn to Romans 1. Please turn with me in Romans 1. We will read a larger portion than we read this morning. Just two verses earlier today, but I want us to read this in greater context, beginning in verse 18. So we're considering how the unbeliever denies this truth of God as creator. And note first how this denial is unreasonable. It's unreasonable. We look to Romans 1. And here Paul is going to say that to act as though God did not make the world, that is not a sincere denial. Fallen man claims there is no creator, but we could say he does so with his fingers crossed behind his back. Look at what Paul says in Romans 1, verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools, and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. 
Note what Paul says in this important passage. He is saying that it is unreasonable, it is insincere to to suppose that there is no God. Atheists may say they don't believe in God, but God does not believe in atheists. That is not an option that he's given to us. Total disbelief is not an option that he's afforded. Those who claim there is no God, they're actually suppressing the truth, Paul says. And you can't suppress something that isn't there. I don't need to to suppress the trash in my garbage can when we just changed out the bag. There's nothing there to suppress. But sure enough, in a day or two, rather than take it out, I will be suppressing, suppressing, hoping that somebody else maybe will run into it later and decide it needs to be taken out. But I can't suppress it unless it's there. And that's what Paul's saying about God. They suppress him because he is real. He is true. And so... One does not have the choice just to passively ignore God. If you want to live life as though there is no God, it involves a lifelong, relentless, and ultimately fruitless attempt to suppress him. But even if you suppress him, you can never silence him. He is there. And Paul underscored that three times, at least three that I noticed. Verse 19, he says that what can be known about God is plain. It's obvious. It's there. Then in verse 20, the reality of God is, quote, clearly perceived. It's plain, clearly perceived. And then in verse 21, he states, they knew God. They knew God. Counterclaims to the creation of the world, where the world came from. Um, Counterclaims to God as the maker. Uh, Claims that Paul... 2,000 years ago, could have never imagined, um, only have since proved to serve his thesis that to, not, to deny the creator is unreasonable. It's an illogical position. To, to try to say that God did not make the world, that's an illogical, unreasonable position. Uh, for example, the publication of The Origin of the Species by Charles Darwin in 1851, that's perhaps done more than any other work to popularize the idea that God isn't necessary um, to explain the existence of the human race. Uh, Darwin uh, proposed uh, several theories in his book that could be backed up by empirical evidence, namely uh, the fact that adaptations occur within species in response uh, to certain environmental pressures. Species adapt to different environments. But Darwin took that, that observation a step further to say that perhaps a a species could adapt to such an extent that it creates and forms an entirely new species. And that's why you have fish that become monkeys, monkeys that become hominids or something like that, and then hominids becoming uh, humans. And evolutionists have have, um, cited this natural selection, or as it's been known, the survival of the fittest, to, to be something worth celebrating. They're saying, look how... Uh, it, it, this is proof that the world is getting better. We're, we're honing in and, and we're improving and, and progressing, uh, moving towards a greater goal, which it, 
is interesting because often evolutionists are also preservationists, and that is to say they're the ones who wring their hands at the extinction of many animal species, and you would think, well, if you really hold to this theory of the survival of the fittest, why do you care that the pandas are, are dying off or certain tiger um, species aren't going to be around much longer? We should be celebrating this. This is the survival of the fittest. But, but a, a pure evolutionist would say that survival of the fittest is a sign of progression, improvement in life. Well, here's where that starts to break down, if you want to use that as proof that God does not exist. Because such a destiny, if this is, we're getting to a better place, that would imply a designer. And in the words of R.C. Sproul, a design without a designer, just like aim without an aimer, begs the question of intelligence. Well, similarly, there's the idea of the Big Bang. And that also is an unreasonable, absurd position to hold, that that um, everything could come from nothing. That makes no sense. Christians affirm creation ex nihilo. There's some Latin for you. Out of nothing. We do believe that the world came out of nothing, and yet that act came from God. God can make something out of nothing, but nothing can't make anything. So it's an absurd position to hold to. And then there's, there's just the, um, uh, the argument from, this goes the whole way back to uh, Plato, Aristotle, Socrates, popularized again by um, uh, Thomas Aquinas. Uh, the, the argument from design, you look around the world and you just see it, was, it, it, it fits humanity. And scientists will acknowledge that uh, the, the, the um, conditions of this universe are just right for human life to thrive. Just the right mixture of nitrogen and, and oxygen and, and just the right amount of gravity and the, the proximity of the sun and so forth. And, and people have used that as an argument for intelligent design. There must be a creator. Well, Stephen Hawking, famous uh, um, astrophysicist and, and uh, atheist, he takes it a, a different angle. He says and admits that the law of physics, quote, this is from his book, um, The Grand Design. He says that the law of physics appear fine-tuned in the sense that if they were altered by only the modest amounts, the universe would be qualitatively different and in many cases unsuitable for the development of life. Right. That's, that's true. So what's your conclusion, Mr. Hawking? He says, were it not for a series of startling coincidences in the precise details of physical law, it seems that humans would never have come into being. So what does, and he's brilliant. I mean, there's just no denying it. He's a brilliant man. What does this brilliant man hang of the existence of the universe upon? Quote, his quote, startling coincidences. Startling coincidences. That's the reason given for the existence of this world by many. Now, is that a rational argument to make? Is that a reasonable argument to make? The claim is that with enough time and opportunity, anything could happen. Shakespeare popularized this idea, although it was unbeknownst to him because it happened hundreds of years after he died. But maybe you've heard of the, um, of the theory proposed in the 1900s by the French mathematician Emile Borel. He said, if you place a monkey in a room with a typewriter and you give him enough time, 
infinity, if you give him infinite chances, that monkey banging around on that typewriter eventually will write out in perfect sequence all the completed works of William Shakespeare. You've heard this before? Yes, right? Uh, the, the probability of that happening is, is extremely low. But given an infinite amount of time, one can't rule out that it might happen. I mean, how could we? We, we aren't infinite creatures. We wouldn't be around forever to say that that could never happen. Similarly, while the probability of a universe just materializing out of nowhere that could sustain human life is so astronomically low, a, a, a universe that could sustain uh, human life in the, the, with the different metrics that we've already mentioned, um, even though that's infinitely low, the probability infinitely low, given infinite time and infinite chances, who's to say it couldn't happen? That's, that's how the argument goes. Well, philosopher... Uh, John Leslie uses an analogy to show the absurdity of that position. He says, picture a prisoner on death row, and he's going to be executed by firing squad by 50 expert marksmen who are standing six feet away. 50 expert marksmen, six feet away, pointing at this one man on death row to execute him. Now, we would all agree that even the best sharp shooter misses from time to time. We would have to agree that. That means we'd also have to agree that it is possible that all 50 of those sharp shooters happen to miss at the same time. I mean, it's, it's, it's possible. But imagine you were the prison warden, and you're watching. Uh, you're, you're watching from your... Uh, your office or your position where you're looking down on this event taking place and you're overseeing the execution, you hear 50 rifles fire and the smoke clears and you see a man still standing alive afterwards. You would not assume that a, a fluke had occurred where everyone just happened to miss at the same time. You would assume, and reasonably so, so that those marksmen had conspired together to save that man on death row. Tim Keller draws out the implication. He says, although organic life could have just happened without a creator, of course he doesn't believe that, but he's just saying, let's just say that that could have happened. Does it make sense to live as if that infinitely remote chance is true? No, it does not make sense. It is irrational. It is illogical. It's unreasonable. So the unbeliever denies that God is creator, but this denial is unreasonable. There's a second thing Paul says in Romans 1. He says it's actually more than being unreasonable. It's unrighteous. That's really the problem, isn't it? Rationality isn't the main issue. Even if modern philosophers or scientists were to present uh, an argument for the existence of the world apart from God that could hold water, and of course they cannot do that. But even if they could, and even if we didn't have um, a, an answer on hand to, to kind of um, uh, to, to tear apart their argument, it wouldn't matter. Even if we can't quickly uh, produce a rebuttal uh, to smart-sounding scientific argumentation, we still hold our position. Why is that? Well, here's what one professor from Westminster Philly says, Vern Poitras, he says, let us tell ourselves not to panic if we don't have all the answers. 
God does not need to prove himself to the world by spectacular details in the Bible that harmonize with science. God is God. He does not need to prove anything. Rather, the whole world is guilty because sinners suppress the obvious testimony that God has put in the natural world concerning himself. And if we think that specialized technical testimony would automatically be more powerful to change people's hearts, we do not know the darkness of the human heart in rebellion against God. You see, friends, the problem is not science. The problem is sin. That's the issue. Romans 1, men by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. That's the issue. In our fallen nature, we run from the one who made us. The one who claim, has claim over our lives. We suppress this truth. Why? Because we hate not being in control. We hate the one that we know really does have authority over us. There's a English author in the 20th century, Sir Kingsley Amos. And he was once at an event in Russia where he met a Russian novelist, Yevgeny Yevtushenko. And Yevtushenko, who was an atheist, learned that Amos from England was also an atheist. And this surprised Yevtushenko because he was under the impression that all Westerners were Christians and they all belonged to the Church of England. So this was kind of interesting, almost exciting. And so he approaches him at this event and he says... Is it true, he says this to Amos, is it true that you're an atheist? And this is what Amos replied, and this is in his own memoirs, okay? Yevtushenko says to him, is it true you're an atheist? And, and Amos replies, well, yes, but it's more that I hate him. Did you hear that? What an honest answer. It's a terrible answer, but he's being so honest well, yes, I don't believe in God, but it's more accurate to say that I hate this God that I don't believe in. The rejection of God as creator is not primarily in the mind, it's in the heart. Our affections are against him. And that's why the result of such a rejection and denial isn't primarily intellectual, but it's moral. Looking again at Romans 1, what happens when the truth of God is suppressed? Look at verse 25. Paul tells us, they exchanged the truth about God for a lie, and they worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. So to reject the creator isn't to reject the idea of a God. Rather, it's to elevate creation to the place of God in your life. It's to blur or lose entirely that, that crucial distinction we call the creator creature distinction. God is God, and we are not. Nothing else is. And that's a heart problem. That's a sin problem. Therefore, when, according to Paul, when the lie is embraced over the truth, the result is a deadly and disastrous life of misplaced worship. They worship the creature rather than the creator. And that's what we saw this morning in Acts 17 in Athens. There's an apologist, he's a New Testament scholar as well, Peter Jones, taught at my seminary, I retired before I got there, but he still came in and would give his class on, on a secular worldview and apologetics. And he has an interesting take on this. He, he talks about how the, the biblical worldview could be called the worldview of two-ism, T-W-O-ism, two-ism. 
And uh, the secular worldview is what he calls one-ism. Two-ism, one-ism. This is what he says. One-ism believes that all is one and shares the same essential nature. Two-ism believes that that the creator nature, namely God, is completely different. And his will determines the nature and the function of all created things. And he goes on to say... Twoism believes that God placed distinctions in the natural world, where oneism rejects those distinctions. We're seeing that even today, right? Rejecting distinctions on um, passports. Why, why uh, distinguish between male and female? Just put an X. We don't need distinctions. Uh, twoism believes that the main distinction is the one between the creator and his creatures, whereas pagan oneism confuses these two, making our own nature divine. Twoist spiritual worship, spirituality worships and serves God by honoring him and giving him thanks, whereas pagan oneism worships creation and the self. Let me try to bring this down for us. I recognize those terms are foreign, and maybe this is all starting to sound a little philosophical. And then we talk about creature worship, and that sounds barbaric. And again, we think, what does that have to do with us living in the 21st century? But this is more prevalent than you would think. Consider three statements. I'm calling these creed-like statements for creature worship. These are all statements you have heard before, and perhaps, though, you've never considered that they are sort of rallying cries, uh, um, religious professions or statements of faith for a secular worldview, slogans used to rail against the created order and God's design as maker. I have three for you. Here's the first. I was born this way. Have you heard that before? I was born this way. This is a claim made commonly by those who have, uh, since birth, um, uh, experienced homosexual predilections. And so their argument against why that homosexuality shouldn't be considered a sin is because they were born this way. How can it be wrong if I was born this way? But notice what's happening here. A higher authority is given to the body or to the mind than is given to the one who made the body and the mind. A higher authority is given to creation, even when creation diverts from the good plan of its good maker. I was born this way. That is what Peter Jones would call oneism. Here's another creed. It's my body, my choice. My body, my choice. Female abortion activists throughout the decades have been screaming this line until their voices have gone hoarse. This reasoning only makes sense when you reject God as creator and establish yourself as creator in his place. I am the final arbiter of what happens to my body, in my body, they're saying. And that is, to be sure, nothing other than self-worship. They worship the creature rather than the creator. Well, here's one final creed for you. Religious-like statement. Be yourself. Be yourself. Now, this is the life force of the average individual living in our secular and identity-obsessed framework. Here's something scary. And young people, I want you to, teenagers especially, pay attention to this. 
when surveyed in 2019 to develop a slogan for Gen Z, I felt like I was always going against millennials, and I was starting to get depressed. So now I'm putting on Gen Zers for, for a change. 13 to 22-year-olds overwhelmingly suggested for the slogan that defined their generation some variation of be yourself. For example, just be you, just be yourself, or do what makes you happy. Now, friends, when the, when the creature is worshipped over the creator, then follow your heart is always sage advice. Always. When the creature is worshipped over the creator, do what feels good will always make sense. And let's just be honest. Um, I know most of you in the room this evening, and I'm imagining many of you are not tempted to affirm the creeds of, I was born this way, or it's my body, my choice, but be yourself That's very alluring, isn't it? That's very tempting. Have you never felt the pull of just do you? Not only is is this pagan one-ism more prevalent than we might have realized, it's more attractive, too. It's attractive. It's alluring. And so I think we would be helped to remember the words by A.W. Pink in his book on the sovereignty of God. He says, learn this basic truth. That the creator is absolute sovereign, executing his own will, performing his own pleasure, and considering nothing but his own glory. The Lord has made all things for himself, Proverbs 16.4. And had he not a perfect right to? Since God is God, who dare challenge his prerogative? To murmur against him is rebellion. To question his ways is to impugn his wisdom. To criticize him is is a sin of the deepest dye. Have we forgotten who he is? Behold, all nations before him are as nothing, and they are counted to him less than nothing in vanity. To whom will you liken to God? Quoting Isaiah 40. If we don't like it, And let's be honest, by nature, we don't like it. The way God has made the world, the fact that he's creator and he calls the shots. We need to be reminded of what Pink says. To rebel against him is a sin of the deepest dye. Well, we've seen how the Bible declares this truth of God as creator. How the unbeliever denies it. Let's close tonight by considering how the believer delights in this truth. Of God as creator. The believer. I'm speaking of the Christian specifically. Because there's the deists of you know, the 18th century. Um, Benjamin Franklin and the likes. The founders of America. They believe. They affirm that there was a God who created the universe. And he was wise and powerful and glorious. And yet they would not have reason as we do as Christians. To delight in this truth. Why is that? Because while they would affirm that God made the world, they would not affirm that God could save the world. And God promises to do just that in Jesus Christ. And so we delight that the creator hasn't left his creation to crumble away. To, he hasn't left his creation to self-destruct. But he's promised to redeem it and to restore it. Sometimes uh, you've encountered problems, let's say, you know, with your computer. Um, problems that are so complicated that they can't be fixed by anybody but the manufacturer. You know, so if you have an, an Apple, that would mean 
or a Mac, that would mean you need to find the nearest Genius Bar and, and take it to the Mac store and, and get, get it fixed. Uh, or some issue with the um, uh, computer board in your car. Clearly, I'm getting beyond my expertise here, but things that make things work in your car, and then they tell you you have to go to the dealer. That's always the worst. You know, I was, we had an issue with our car not starting, and we were Googling everything, and we learned Google is not God last week. Uh, but Google finally told us what you need to do is call the dealer. I really just wanted Google to tell me all you have to do is push this one button, right? Sometimes problems are so complex, they're so, um, they're so deep that the only thing we can do is take them back to their, take the uh, thing that is broken back to its maker. And that's the story of the gospel. Uh, the gospel tells us that the creator saw his creation had been corrupted. And instead of allowing it to continue on that course, he stepped into creation himself to fix it. The only one who could fix the mess that we had made gets into the mess with us. That's the incarnation. God is not content. Dear brothers and sisters, this is how wonderfully merciful our God is. He's not content to, to remain in his lofty place looking down on all of the trouble we have caused his creation. Say, you know what? Let it burn. That's what they deserve. No, he says, I love them so. I'm going to come in to this creation. I'm going to fix it. Only a creator can recreate. That's why Christians delight in the truth. Of Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God made the heavens and the earth because it means that in the end, he will remake the heavens and the earth. Dorothy Sayers, some of you know that name. She was a contemporary with the likes of C.S. Lewis and G.K. Chesterton. And um, she was also one of the first women to make it through Oxford in the early 1900s. And she was also the author of a series of, of mystery novels with the uh, bachelor protagonist, Sir Peter Whimsey. And um, halfway through uh, the series of novels, she introduces a new character named Harriet Vane. And people notice something interesting about this character, Harriet Vane. For one, this character was also one of the first women to make it through Oxford. And secondly, this character in the stories was also the author of a series of murder mysteries. And Harriet Vane comes in the, the novels, and she meets Sir Peter Whimsey, and she feels for him, this, this lonely man. And her heart goes out to him, and so she rescues him. She marries him, and the rest of the stories are the two of them solving mysteries together, and they live forever, or they live together happily ever after the end. Well, what did people put together? It wasn't that hard to realize that author Dorothy Sayers had fallen in love with her protagonist, and she hurt to see him alone. And so she wrote herself into the story to save him. Friends, that's what God has done. The author of the world has written himself into the world, in the person of Jesus Christ. That's what he's done for us. Christ comes and, and he takes us to be his bride so that we could live together happily ever after. But such is the power of sin, that our Redeemer, our Savior, he has to be the maker. He has to be the author too. Jesus can't just be a kind, loving, sacrificial, good example. That's not strong enough to save us from the curse of sin. 
And the way Paul describes it in 2 Corinthians 4 is that it takes the very same power to create the universe as it does to change the heart of fallen man. You and I, we can't, we can't do that. I can't do that. You can't do that. But Paul tells us, God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Well, this is what our lost neighbors, friends, and family members need to hear. Whatever their view on the origins of the universe, we can all agree on this fact. It's messed up right now. We don't like what we've got now. We don't like where it's going. It's a messed up place. The atheist has no solution for that. The secular humanist has no solution for that. The creature worshiper, the creation worshiper has no solution for that. But we as believers can come and say, yes, I know these are dark times we're living in. I know life is playing out, is not playing out the way you had wished for it, hoped for. But the God who wrote the story in the first place is rewriting the ending. This is where the gospel comes in. It, it, it's power outside of ourselves, interrupting uh, human history and human plans. As Christians, we point forward uh, to a hope that's more radical than simply remaining hopeful. Uh, or, or that's more radical than, than acting faithfully in this world. We point toward a new world entirely that God has promised beyond the nightmares that we have created, that the dystopias that, that we have made. Our greatest hope in the midst of this failing world and its institution institutions is that nothing we do can save it, but we don't need to because God who made the world will make another one. And the question I pose to you tonight is, will you be there? Will you be a part of it? Do you know God as the maker, the maker of all? And do you know him as your redeemer in Christ Jesus? Let's conclude with these beautiful words from Wilhelm S. He explains the comfort that comes from knowing your creator has become your savior in Christ. He says, the contemplation of God as creator, first of all, makes it very evident that all of your security, all of your freedom, all of your rest, your peace and happiness consists in the goodness and love of your maker towards you. But while you remain the object of his wrath, all his creatures will be opposed to you. Nothing will give you peace as long as your maker is displeased with you. When, however, your maker is again reconciled with you in Christ, your father now being pleased with you, you are then free indeed, for everything will be at peace with you. Let's pray. Almighty God, the maker of the heavens and the earth, the one who formed us in our mother's wombs, the one who has remade our hearts through the proclamation of the gospel, and the one who promises to make all things new. We come to you now, and we ask that you would spread that glorious truth the whole world over, that many who are lost and in darkness and who are distressed at the state of affairs of this world will come to find the hope, the consolation, and the peace that's found in knowing that you who have made all things have sent your Son into this world. You who wrote the story have written yourself into the story to save us who believe. We ask that there would be a mighty revival in our day and age. People acknowledging you to be the maker of all. 
indeed also the Redeemer of those who trust in you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.